0: Well, hello, friends, and welcome to this 10th episode of the Compelling Community podcast, a podcast where we talk about a book that we've been reading together as a church. The book is, of course, The Compelling Community by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. And uh, we're just a few chapters away from the book's conclusion now. And in this book, we've been thinking about, well, we've been thinking about lots of things, but predominantly we have been thinking most of all about the importance of Christians uh, seeing their own local church as a family, not as a local sports team, Uh, that we watch and follow from the stands, uh, not as a local community service that we just want to support financially, not as a local business that we just want to pay for and consume the product, but a family, a gospel family, a family who love Jesus Christ and so love Jesus Christ's people, a family that is therefore broad uh, in its makeup and deep when it comes to spiritual relationships. And accordingly, thus far in the book, we've been thinking about all the things that we can do to get a family like that, uh, how we can be the holy family of God together. However, uh, in last week's chapter, we saw it was a problem. Uh, The problem is not in the goal, obviously. The problem is with, uh, essentially, people like me, people who are called to glorify God in that way. In short, uh, the church is made up of sinners, and sinners complain, and sinners are people who are discontent with others. Uh, we saw that last week. And not only that, but sinners sin. And accordingly, I would say that we need uh, to see our local church, Edgefield Church, not only as a family, but also as a hospital, a hospital full of people who are sick, sinners. And as a result, I'm delighted to welcome a special guest, a man who spends most of his days in a hospital, our very own doctor and elder, Dr. Bill Herman. Uh, Bill, it's great to have you with us. Welcome to our luxurious studio. Um, Now, let me ask you, do you really see our church as that? Do you really see our church as a hospital, a hospital for sick, sinful people? And if so, why is that important? Well,
1: Jonathan, first let me say thanks for having me. This is really fun to be here, and it is a really important topic for me to think about. How do we fight sin together in the local church? And I do see our church as a hospital. And what I mean by that is that nobody in our church has everything together. I think there's a real tendency to come to church where people are put together on a Sunday morning and to look around and see people who you think have it more together than you do. Mm -hmm. And that's just a lie. Everybody in our church is struggling with things in their life. Everybody in our church is a sinner who is desperately in need of a Savior, and until we remember that, that we are actually sick people who need other sick people to get better, there really is no hope of building the kind of culture that takes sin seriously in our lives.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's really helpful. So the basic premise of this chapter is essentially be honest uh, about sin uh, in the church. Don't just pretend, as you said, that the the illness isn't there. But help one another uh, as a church to treat the problem of sin. But before we answer that, let me just ask you, why, why should we even look to treat sin? Why Why is that important? Particularly if it's a small sin, if it's not something horrendous, can't we just leave it alone?
1: Well, one of the great powers of sin is that it's deceptive and that we tend to think about our own sin as sort of small and insignificant and not really problematic, but the Bible just rejects that thinking completely. Because we serve a holy God. And even small sins are infinitely offensive to an infinite God. And taking sins seriously... Means recognizing that even these small sins have the potential to do damage in our lives. They have the potential to keep us from a meaningful relationship with God, and they have the potential to keep us from a meaningful relationship with each other. And so, we need to take sin deadly seriously. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I I, t- I totally agree. Um, you know, we are we are to to fight it because we're we're a church. We're we're to we're to grow in holiness, and we're to be like God we've been thinking about throughout the book. Uh, 1 Peter 1.15 says, Be holy in all your conduct. Uh, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to be that 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 light upon a hell uh, as a church. And so all sin is important. And I'd agree with you in terms of sin's deceitfulness. Oh, that's a great I think that's a great point. Um, Charles Spurgeon uses this this great illustration of sin starting like a kind of thin end of the wedge, and he and he kind of uses this powerful metaphor of, of of Satan using that kind of that thin end of the wedge to kind of hammer into the Christian. Um, very powerful, and that's why we're to encourage one another daily, because of the deceitfulness of sin.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that's really important to me about this is that the local church is a gift that God gives us to fight this sin together. It's a means of grace in our lives to have these other brothers and sisters who know that they're sinners too, who are willing to come alongside us and and root out that sin, root out that deceitfulness, root out that pain, so that we can become more like Jesus and live lives that honor Him.
0: Yeah, agreed. But what about, you know, you've talked about the importance of us treating sin together. I can imagine that some people listening to this kind of shuffling in their car seats thinking, hang on a second, doesn't does doesn't Jesus say you shouldn't judge one another? Isn't there a danger of, of a judginess here if we start to take on sin in others' lives?
1: Well, absolutely. There is a danger that we could become legalistic or judgmental in the way that we approach sin. I think that's a real... Uh, concern—in fact, the way the, the book puts it—is that we really want to be a church that takes sin seriously, but without becoming self-righteous. Maybe another way to say it is that we want to have both grace and truth as we work together in community. And to the question of, isn't it dangerous not to judge—or isn't it dangerous that you could potentially judge people as you're working in this community to root out sin together? The first thing I would say to that is, it's actually unloving not to, yeah. because we believe that sin separates you from God. And we want people to know God and to be in relationship with God, and so when we see sin in people's lives, to just leave them languishing in that condition is actually the least loving thing that we could possibly do. And so we, we see it as loving to, to bring people uh, to repentance and to help them see sin in their lives and to work with them. But the goal, the thing that makes it not judgy, is, number one, remembering we're all sinners, too. Mm-hmm. The danger is that I think—I could think I'm not a sinner, and so when I come to you, that's where that self-righteousness comes out. Yeah. And the other thing is the goal of my coming to you in in helping you see your sin is not to make you feel badly about yourself. It's to gain my brother. Yeah. It's to bring someone back to relationship with me and to relationship with God, and that's so important. Yeah.
0: Amen. Amen. And yet, this is, this is very countercultural. So how do we, how do we start that? How do we make that normal uh, in terms of our culture as a church, to, to just at least talk about sin?
1: Well, this is actually why I sort of volunteered to be part of this uh, podcast in the first place, because I think the way that we work together in the church, to address our sin is one of the most important things that I have been witness to over the last 10 years of being an elder here. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I would sort of reflect on is how, of how we build that culture is realizing that it's everybody's responsibility. Yep. So dealing with sin is not only the purview of the pastor dealing with sin is the responsibility of every single church member and that is a theme by the way that has been coming back over and over in this book is that we are owners of this church we are not consumers yep. we are co-partners together and and i think that that starting there is one of the most important things that we can do to build a culture of accountability and transparency and vulnerability that's so important to spiritual healthiness in our church
0: yeah any more anything more kind of practical on that i remember a pastor uh saying to me once we were talking about a pastoral case and i can't even remember what it was about now but he said well have you outright asked him this and i think in all my kind of british sensibilities i just thought oh you know I, I can't ask that that's just that's just that's just private it seems a kind of very kind of open american thing to do to kind of get down and ask those kind of questions but actually i i saw that sometimes Asking the kind of slightly awkward question, the next level question, starts to help uh, the relationship to go deeper, but also starts to uncover sin as well. Any more kind of practical things like that, like asking an awkward question, taking it to the next level? Any other thoughts on that for, for helping members?
1: Yeah, it is actually pretty awkward, especially in a new relationship, to ask somebody about a really private part of their life. And so, the first thing is, you just gotta start, because you get used to it. <laughs> Over time, it becomes less awkward, and honestly, you become less surprised by what people say. I think one of the really important parts of walking with people in sin is just not being surprised by people's sin. Mm-hmm. And it takes a couple of years of working on that to get good at that, because uh, sin is can sometimes be surprising. But being surprised by somebody's sin is certainly a way to turn off any meaningful accountability or relationship with them. So you just gotta practice. And there's no two ways around it. You just got to ask the hard questions, and uh, that's okay. One thing, though, that I, I do think can be really helpful here is for you to actually model that vulnerability in the relationships that you have. Yeah. So, in fact, if you want to build a relationship of accountability, you can actually start by taking that brother or sister out to lunch and then sharing what's going on in your life and modeling that kind of accountability and even inviting it. To say, you know, I am struggling with this, would you please ask me about this the next time you see me? Would you please send me a text message? And if you invite that kind of accountability in your life, then that's going to free up the other person who's feeling awkward about it to even ask you. And I think that sort of two-way vulnerability is really the way to build this um, culture of walking with people uh, through sin.
0: I've also found that sharing your testimony is another helpful way as you share sins in your past and how the Lord brought you out of them. That's often a helpful way to go as well. Anyway, let's get on to some uh, scenarios now. Let's just really root it in the everyday. Let's let's imagine, for example, first of all, someone in your small group, say, is, is constantly uh, railing about that the sermons at Edgefield, they think they're too boring or they think that you know, that the preacher talks too much about judgment or they mishandle the text what what do you actually start to do when, when that happens?
1: Well, when you start to see somebody who is doing something that you think might be sinful, I think it can feel very challenging to know how to move forward and so we have a couple of models that will first guide us. And I think to actually go to the Bible here would be helpful. One yep. of the sort of central features of the chapter that we read was Matthew uh, chapter 18, uh-huh. and so I'm just going to read part of it here and then and comment Please. on how it might affect the question you just asked. So Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 say, "'If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, when we read that passage, I think most of us jump to the last phrase. Mm -hmm. It's like, if he refuses to listen, then kick him out of the church. And we sort of miss the whole first three sentences. Which says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And I think that's actually where you have to begin when you start to see somebody living in a way or doing something that you think is sinful. You just have to go to them and talk to them. And in that conversation, there are three things that you really need to do. Number one, you need to assume you don't know the whole story. Yep. which means be slow to judge the situation, ask clarifying questions, help understand why they're doing what they're doing, you almost certainly don't know everything you need to know. Yep. The second thing is that you need to be very patient with that person. So even if they are doing something that's very sinful, you want to take a moment and realize it might take God some time to do work in their heart for them to stop, and so that whole conversation and that whole opportunity to confront their sin has to be marked by patience. And then the third thing that I would say is that we have to believe that the Holy Spirit is what changes hearts. Yeah. So when you walk into a conversation where you're confronting somebody's sin, I often feel totally inadequate for that conversation. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? What kind of of advice am I going to give them? I don't know the answer. And that's true. We don't know the answers. Our responsibility actually is not to fix that person's sin, our responsibility is to share how we're seeing things, help them reflect that it might be sinful, and then walk with them as God does the work in their lives.
0: Yeah, amen, amen. And yeah, I think if the the Holy Spirit is working, in the vast majority of cases, as as Christians, uh, as as people point out sin in in Christians, they're going to be repentant, they're going to be quick to say sorry, and, uh, yeah, we trust the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in our lives. Let's just move forward a little bit in that in that Matthew 18 passage that you just read to us and imagine a second scenario. So let's imagine a, a, a different situation. Someone at church um, is committing fraud, maybe. Maybe you're their friend and they invite you out for coffee and they, they buy you coffee and they buy you bagels. And you start to ask, you know, hey, the business seems to be going quite well. And then they it all comes out, um, perhaps, um, they, they they tell you that that they've been committing fraud or whatever it is, and uh, you say, "Hey, that that that's not right. You you can't do that and, and and be a Christian." But they kind of just laugh it off and say, "Hey, you know, it's just it's a bit of cheating on the tax forms or or whatever it is. Um, let's just keep it a secret." What what do you do then when someone essentially is saying, "Nah, it's not really a big deal," and you've done all you can?
1: Yeah. I will say, thankfully, in my experience, those types of situations are few and far between. Yeah. So to what you said before, we can assume, especially people who are in our Church, that they are going to be quick to repent, they want to see sin in their lives. This is an unusual circumstance. Yep. But when it does happen, the Bible is actually very clear, that Matthew 18 passage that we read a moment ago is very clear what you should do next. You should bring a couple of people with you to have an additional conversation, and I think that's actually one of the key um, practical tips when you're dealing with this more serious sin that, that somebody's sort of refusing to acknowledge, is to keep the circle small. Mm-hmm. I think when you start to see these big sort of problems, there's a tendency to want to share it with a bunch of people, to yeah. ask for advice, and often that, um, it, that desire is sort of genuine. You really don't know what to do, and you're trying very hard to figure it out, and... But keeping the circle small is a really important component of that approach. Otherwise, it can tend to gossip, and and that really is a a problem when you're dealing with sin uh, in the Church.
0: And so do you think that that two or three that Jesus mentions, do you think that that is ideally elders? I mean, I know it doesn't have to be, but...
1: Yeah, I think that depends a little bit on the, the nature of the sin and how equipped... Um, you feel personally to handle it. I certainly don't think it needs to be elders. Um, I think it can be, and that's one of the great things that I love about our church is that we have so many wise uh, elders who are eager to help members figure out how to deal with situations like these, providing wise counsel, going with somebody. Um, But I, I don't think it has to be an elder.
0: OK, well, let's imagine a, a third, more extreme scenario. Let's imagine, say, a fellow female church member who you work with is evidently having an affair. And you find out as an elder and you approach them and, and they deny it. And then you tell some other people and perhaps uh, the elders gather around them. And finally, they, they admit it. But they say, hey, listen, I'm just going to I'm going to leave my husband. I'm done with him. I, I love this other man. Wouldn't Jesus you know, just want me to be happy? They're kind of clearly denying it. What what then happens practically?
1: Well, that gets to a very sad moment in the life of a church, and it's something that often uh, people who are in church a lot start to call church discipline. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to be quick to say, church discipline actually, as we understand it, encompasses everything we've been talking about today. Yeah, the whole of Matthew chapter eighteen is is church discipline. We think that means. Just broken people helping broken people in the Church to fight out sin, that's Church discipline.
0: Yeah, Church discipleship.
1: Yeah, Church discipleship, exactly. But when somebody continues to engage in unrepentant sin after a long period of of working with them, calling them to repentance, talking to them, meeting after meeting, after conversation after conversation, and they're just hardened in their opposition to say, I'm going to continue to do this, even though you, my pastors, think it's sinful. Well then we move into a different realm, again driven largely by Matthew 18, where that that sin no longer can be dealt with in private, where we then need to bring that sin in front of the Church and Let the Church respond uh, as it sees fit. One of the things that I think people get confused about in the um, sort of final stages of Church discipline Mm -hmm. is that it's sort of a one-stop shop. It's the elders bring it, there's a vote, that's it. But rather, actually, I think this process would be quite lengthy, where where if it were to happen— we, the elders would bring a situation like that in front of the Church, the Church would know about it, and then the Church would be sent out to try and bring that person back, to try and call that person to repentance. Mm-hmm. There'd be time that still went between when it was first mentioned publicly, and then even after all of that, even after all of that, if the person still says, I am going to continue in this way, and I think I'm a Christian— then we have a problem, and and that's when the Church needs to take
0: some action. Um, Because they deceive themselves, essentially.
1: Yeah. Where we run into trouble is when people disagree about whether or not they are Christians. So thankfully, in the 10-year history of our Church, this has never happened. As long as I've been an elder, we've never gotten to a place where we disagreed with somebody in this way. We have gotten to places where people have said, I'm going to continue living in this way that is sinful, that's contrary to what the Bible says, but I no longer believe I'm a Christian. And when that happens, there's no role for what we might call excommunication. There's no role for the Church to remove somebody from membership because they're already saying, I no longer serve Jesus. Where you get into real trouble is when somebody says, I believe I serve Jesus, and i'm continuing to live in unrepentant sin that's when the church really has something to say about that and to say no actually we're not so sure that you stand with jesus anymore and and that is just a terrible thing to think about and it's super unusual um it's made me wonder you know in my time as a pastor we've never had to do that um, in our church i wonder if you and your experience have seen or, or witnessed this kind of a situation going well or, or what your experience has been like with those kind of situations.
0: Well, also, I've never experienced that in terms of dealing with that case uh, coming up in, in a church I've been working for. However, there was a time when I was doing a membership interview with someone who was coming into our church, and I always ask the question in a membership interview, just kind of standard question, as I'm learning about their past and their testimony and so on. You know, I said, have you ever been removed from a church? Have you ever been excommunicated? and Obviously, 99.9% of the cases people say no, but then I was talking to this, this chat once in a membership interview, and he said yes, and uh, I kind of almost fell off my chair, and I said, <laughs> well, you know, you know, just tell me a little bit about it, and basically the, the story was that he was, um, he said that he became a Christian, and was baptized in his teens, he joined this church, and then essentially in his late teens, he just kind of fell off. The track he started getting into drugs he started sleeping around all those kind of things and his church lovingly went after him and said hey you know they pointed out sin they basically went through matthew 18 and uh, the elders spent a long time with him patiently saying hey you know you can't call yourself a christian and continue to live contrary to, to, to christ and what he teaches and he basically said yes i'm a christian and i don't really care and so finally, the church got to that final stage and they, they sent him a letter and they said, we no longer can affirm your faith in, in Christ. Um, and he said that that letter just really, really shook him. Now, he continued for a few more years in that sin, but that letter, that, that, that church removing the that, that affirmation of faces from what they could best see, really shook him to the core such that in a few years' time, that was one of the things that drove him back to church. And wonderfully, he came back into a church and then finally came uh, to our church. And one of the things I said to him is, you know, have you ever written to that church or spoken to that church? And he said, no, I don't think so. I said, you should, you should write to them. You should write to them and say, thank you for loving me enough to actually point out my sin, to point out its deception. Because that was one of the things that in in God's kindness uh, brought me round. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. I think we see an example of that through the way in which we love people enough uh, to talk about sin and to point out sin. Friends, we're going to pause there. Thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Bill, for for joining us in particular. Uh, Join us again for the penultimate edition of the Compelling Community Podcast.